Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Well, hello there. Welcome. Before we get to Jonathan Martin and a great discussion about a great book, let me tell you about two things. First is the E3 Conference. Exactly. Thank you, daughters. Sally Gary, our friend, friend of the show, is putting on the E3 conference. For those who are wondering how to respond to the needs of parents who have a son in the LGBTQ community or for searching for better ways to support men and women who, ex- who are a part of the LGBTQ community within your congregation. So join me, Richard Beck, and my elders in my church wanted to say that they're coming too. Um, So, yeah, it's going to be a party, Uh, along with plenty of other people, October 27th through 29th in Dallas, Texas. Uh, There is a link to their website in the show notes, so check that out. E3 conference, a great event. Hope you guys join me there. The second thing I want to tell you about is we've got upcoming on the podcast a... Say mailbag. 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 Exactly. Another mailbag podcast. We're already getting some good questions coming in. People question about uh, how do you read the Bible in light of paradox and contradiction? How do you parent when you are... Bye, girls. How do you parent when you yourself are going through construction, deconstruction, reconstruction? Uh, Some good questions coming in already, and please send in more. So if you have a question you want discussed on this upcoming mailbag podcast, email them to me, luke at luke Dot com. Send me a message on the Facebook page, or you can always uh, send in an audio of you actually talking uh, if you want to do that too. So um, without further ado, it's time for Jonathan Martin talking about how to survive a shipwreck. Let's go. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today we have returning to the show from Tulsa, Oklahoma, Mr. Jonathan Martin. How are you, Jonathan? I am well, my friend. How about yourself? I'm good. I'm good. Now, last time you were on, you just broke the news that you were moving to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yeah. It had not been announced, and it finally did happen. Yeah. You were not lying to us. I did not lie to you about that. <laughs> 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 yeah, I've been in Tulsa for a year now, actually, this month. How's that working out? Yeah, really, really well. I mean, it's been, um, it was a little disorienting at first. Um, I've never lived anywhere outside of Charlotte, my hometown before. So it was a big thing and every, every same time. I'm here. It's really feeling like home. Um, I'm teaching pastor at Sanctuary Church now and really love the community there. So that's been great. And yeah, feeling more and more filled in these days. It definitely feels like where I'm supposed to be. Good. I sense that you're even rooting for the Oklahoma City Thunder in basketball now. You sense that in your spirit? In, in your in your spirit, man, or the or the Twitter, I sense that in the Twitter. <laughs> yeah, you know, I liked the Thunder from afar before, so that was an easy transition to make. I'm just not used to like, I'm just not used to having um, a professional sports franchise to pull for that you know wins a good bit of the time. <laughs> I mean, I know they lost ultimately the Warriors, but it's a strong team, you know. So yeah, I actually I love the Thunder. I got to go to like three Thunder playoff games, even. I mean, the proximity to Oklahoma City. For the games is one of my favorite things about Tulsa, actually. Yeah. You're, you're living the dream now. You get to go to the professional games. Good for living you, Living the dream, for sure. So, two things. One, I saw that you and Jared McKenna are, like, blooming bromance on Twitter. Yeah. That's happening. Yeah. It should be. Um, I really think there's a great 
rom-com in the making between yeah. the two of us you know it's yeah. like sort of <laughs> yeah and he's got that sweet australian accent and you know then i'm this sort of clueless american there's yep. a lot. yeah that's great <laughs> no jared's jared's fantastic i just went to australia a few months ago back in march it was my first time to ever go and i've you know loved what jared's done from afar and we connected actually through twitter first i guess years ago but he's really become one of my best friends. Just adore Jared. Great, great guy. And he's coming here to the, uh, to the States this summer, so I think we're going to hang out nice. uh, some of the next few months as well. Are you going to have him preach at uh, Sanctuary? You know, I, we haven't worked out itinerary stuff. We're going to go to a conference together, uh, okay. I think, in Chicago. So I don't know who, what all we're going to need to work out yet, but I'm hoping to bring him here in some capacity for sure. Cool. I think it'd be a great uh, like buddy cop kind of movie because you're like a monster and he's... Not really yeah. a monster at all. Yeah. Very compact size, I think. So I think it'd yeah. be perfect. He's very, he's very, he is portable. He is decidedly <laughs> <He's> portable. portable. <laughs> okay, well, let's talk about your, um, your massive size. I think I might have told you this on Twitter, but last year for my Christmas Eve sermon, I, uh, I referenced there's a section in Ian Cron's book about love stooping. I don't know if you remember yeah. that. Love always yeah. stoops. Well, I used as a, an analogy, like how tall you are. And like when I took a picture with you before our last podcast that I posted, you look like my dad and I'm like a fifth grader next to you. And then like a couple days later, a couple weeks later, I was at a friend's church in, in Denver and uh, the worship pastor's daughter is going to play D1 volleyball next year. She's like 6'2 or 6'3. And so we took a picture right as I was leaving, but I noticed in the picture I'm actually taller than her because she stooped down next to me. And so she was an example of love stooping and you were an example of, well, like the opposite of Jesus. Wow. Yeah. I was about to say, so I am not the father's love in this. No, you're, you're kind of the, the antithesis of that. So, uh, sorry, dude, but, uh, it it was a good sermon illustration. Well, I was going to say, I mean, I don't mind being your looming ogre so long as it's for like kingdom purposes. You know, it's like, I'll take one for the team. It, it was Christmas Eve. I mean, it's for, it's for the the incarnation. Yeah, so, I mean, it's a yeah. it's a good Sunday. I'm in favor of the incarnation. Just for the record, <laughs> I am I am in favor of it. <laughs> okay. Well, I got that off my chest, and I feel a whole lot better now. Good, I hope you do good. too. I absolve okay. you. <laughs> good. Okay. So let's. You got a new book that uh, it actually came out like yesterday or yes, today. Sir. Yeah, yesterday was released there. That's exciting. Uh, the, the title is How to Survive a Shipwreck, mm-hmm. and. Um, one day into it, how you feel? Because this is a, a a very personal content subject matter. Um, do you have like any buyer's remorse of like talking about your own shipwreck after it's been out now? Well, you know, I don't know if I would call it buyer's remorse, but at the very least, it's maybe the most severe vulnerability hangover hangover I've ever had because I just feel like. I mean, I think it is the most personal book I would ever write, and it certainly comes out of the most tender season of my life. So, you know, it's one thing when a handful of people have read it who are your peers and colleagues that you trust and love, but the idea of putting that one out into, you know, um, just throwing it out into the water. uh, Yeah, I I felt that in my stomach more yesterday than I thought. But at the same time, it feels feels really important. So there's no regret in that regard. And you know, I tried to make, I, I don't know, it was really important to me that in this book that nobody's blood is on the pages but my own. And I yeah. tried to, you know, it's very much my own journey of trying to connect with God from some pretty deep and uh, and dark places. So, you know, it simultaneously feels so urgent to write, but at the same time, felt really fragile too. So, yeah, there is still a little bit of like a, 
and open sore all the more and kind of releasing and putting out there. But the same time, very much a sense that you know, I felt like it's what I was supposed to do. Yeah, yeah. Well, it came across well to me. Uh, I, mm. I wouldn't be interviewing if I didn't think so about this. Right, but, hey, that's good to know. Yeah, I wouldn't ever. Uh, we'll, we'll just, I'll just tweet about it. Um, sure. Okay, you said you only want your blood to be on the page, and I, I was yeah. wondering how that process went of determining, um, like, how much you're going to share. Obviously, there's a there's a huge industry for voyeurism. Reality TV shows sell pretty good because people want that. Um, how did you balance that? It came across very tasteful. Did you have some sort of filter for how you were going to determine this is too much, this isn't enough? Well, you know, um, why, yes, Luke, my filter is the Holy <laughs> Spirit. <laughs> There's a Pentecostal. There it is. Right. No, I mean, for one, I really did trust on my very closest friends with this one. Like, I invited really rigorous feedback from the people I loved uh, because I knew that would matter a lot. But I think part of it for me was... I mean, it's a hard balance to get in some ways, but what was uncomplicated to me was I just kind of felt like the um, some of the contours of my own struggle and journey, like kind of on an external level, I just truly don't believe are are, are all that interesting in the way that, I don't know, human stories of um, pain and struggle are. Like, I definitely felt like the soul stuff was the most interesting thing and this sense of like, what does it mean now from this place? Uh, to really try to connect with God. Like, I feel like that was a much better question to ask, you know, because I feel like in some ways it's like, and that's where I, even though there's so much of my story in it, what kept me from kind of doing this, you know, a straightforward memoir per se, is I feel like in some ways, you know, like, I don't know. I don't know. I didn't know that I felt like uh, the, the story kind of on the top level would uh, necessarily interest people that that much. And it, and it really did just mean the world to me that it just needed to be, again, very much like, this is the struggle of my own soul through all of this. Because, you know, especially uh, when it, even in talking about things like leaving the church and folks like behind from where I come from, like all that, those are people that I love very, very dearly and still very much have a heart for and very much miss, you know. So one to do it in a way that would sort of honor everybody involved was, was really important mm-hmm. to me. So the, the foreword of the book is written by a friend of the show, Shauna Nequist, and she talks about how yeah. she has grown up on boats, and that's a big part of you know, her life. If you follow her on Twitter, like you can't help but see like there's a boat every other picture that she seems to post. Uh, So it makes sense for her to have like a nautical theme imagery with some of her writing. How did that become the imagery that you got behind? That's a great question. You know, um, I think it was without one to make it sound spooky. It almost felt like uh, throughout the season that was kind of uh, ocean and all that. It seemed like the language of my dreams you know i felt like almost kind of intuitively i kept going back to those images really not even looking for them i felt pushed in that way i I, I did so much reading about leviathan and just the sea in hebrew mythology as the place of chaos where the monsters come from and daniel and all that like i just kept going back it almost felt like i was sort of the the current was kind of pushing me there you know and i think there's what i discovered i mean i didn't do a bunch of academic research for this or anything but that actually, I think in times of crisis, people are often drawn to those kind of images precisely because I just don't think anything quite, I don't think anything quite captures that sense of scale and perspective, like being a tiny human person as a dot in the middle of this great ocean. That, that, is, that is what it feels like. And so then I think all that language of waves and drowning, it just seems so kind of native to my soul during the, during the whole season. 
Yeah. So you reference a Robert Redford movie. Yeah. Um, I, I, what's the title? All of the movie? is lost. All is lost. Yeah. Which, as you describe it, I'm going. I'm an Enneagram Seven. That's way too depressing for me to watch. <laughs> so I'm not going to watch it. But like, it does. It, it gives that picture of like you're just this tiny speck in the midst of this vast ocean, right. and it, you kind of feel just how how small you are. Yeah. Yeah. Which is like. And the thing that's fascinating for me about that imagery, because I, I saw that film kind of in the midst of everything going on in the theater, and it just, it was such a, I mean, I feel like I was watching a metaphor. You know, it's like, oh, this is my life right now. But uh, part of what was fascinating for me about that is that that image is simultaneously really frightening for me and really liberating, too. I mean, the frightening part is when you see how small you are against these other elements and just how fragile life is, how frail you are. That's terrible. I think the flip side of that is I feel like so much um, about culture in general, certainly church culture, even our technology and all that, it just kind of almost wires us uh, to a certain kind of self-importance. And you, and I think all the more so for those of us in ministry um, carry a certain amount of weight on our shoulders. I'm an Enneagram too, so carrying the weight of the world kind of comes naturally to me. You need to help and yeah. save everybody. So I think like in that regard, while it was really terrifying, there's something kind of liberating too. If it's almost like, you know, on the one hand, it's like, oh my gosh, I'm so small in the midst of all this. And then there's often moments of, wait, I'm actually really small. Like I'm not nearly as important as I thought that I was. Not as much depends on me as I thought once did. And so that that comes across as freeing to you as a, not to get all Enneagram on you, but the sense of, I don't have to carry it all. Is there yes. any relief in that? In my better moments, yes. And I think it's more, it's more terrifying than comforting most of the time. But yes, there are moments when that's tremendously liberating to me. Yeah. 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 Okay, so one of the, uh, you, you start the book pretty early off with the story of your last Sunday at uh, Renovatus. Did I say it right? Yes, that's right. Okay. Um, side note, um, how, how long ago was that? It was like Easter two years ago, three years yeah, ago? Yeah, that had been uh, Easter of... 2014, I guess. 2014. Okay. I had, uh, so my podcast had started a handful of months before then. And I thought, you know, I'd like to talk, talk to Jonathan Martin. I've listened to some of his stuff, listened to his sermons. I'd like to reach out to him. So I sent an email to your assistant, probably like the week of, uh, this story. Wow. And, and so I'm like, Oh, okay. Now I realize why his assistant said he's kind of busy right now. Yeah. Um, because you were just stepping away. Um, I'm not bitter about that or anything. <laughs> he's <laughs> underwater right now. <laughs> he's currently <And> drowning. <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, oh, okay. Well, I guess I should get rid of my, you know, Ouija board with the, right. the curse I was going to put he's on Jonathan. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no voodoo. I, I, no, none of that. But so, so two years ago, your Easter Sunday, you announced your resignation, yeah. and then at the end of the service, you get baptized again. Yeah. And. As soon as I read it, my first thought was, this is Barbara Brown Taylor's story about getting thrown into the, to the water at the pool, yeah. which you reference later in the book. Yeah. Uh, both of us are big fans of Barbara Brown Taylor and her work. Um, when that's happening, do you connect that to Barbara Brown Taylor's story of being at this pool party and feeling left out until someone finally pushes her in the water, and now she feels like she's one of, one of the normal people after that? Mm. Or did you connect that afterwards? You know, that is a great question. I mean, I definitely read the book long before that happened. So it might have been in mine. I mean, because I remember reading that section and feeling such longing. I mean, I've been full-time ministry since I was 21. It's all I've ever known. And I think just 
it, for me, it was always so important to be responsible and to be the one, again, others depend on or whatever. So mm-hmm. I remember like, when I read Leaving Church the first time years ago, having this kind of ache in the center of my chest of like, oh, that, I mean, I wish yeah. I could have that experience. But, you know, at the t- honestly, um, I don't think I thought about it consciously at the time. And the reason I say that is simply I didn't plan to be baptized that day. I was doing baptism. And it was the last kind of sacramental thing I do for that community. And it was more like when it was all said and done, it was like, I don't know, almost like uh, what else could I do except to kind of take the plunge for myself, still not knowing where my life was going in so many ways. So much was up in the air. I didn't know where I was headed. So in that way, I don't know, it was just, it was interesting because it didn't feel especially pious in that way. I do, where it was very much like the story, even if I wasn't thinking of it in those terms at the time, was that there was a sense of wanting to be in the water where my where my people were, yeah. just like they were. Yeah. Like instead of being the first to officiate, like I want to be in with them. So yeah, I think it was more like that kind of came full circle for me after the fact, actually, to remember mm-hmm. that story. And to, to feel like, yeah, for me, that was almost felt like a kind of reenactment of that. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. The, the line that stood out to me uh, as you described that moment was you said, I had led as a pastor in our shared humanity. Like you yeah. getting in the water with everyone else, like we are, and that's the back the background of the story with with VBT is that everyone else was being pushed in the water, but as the priest, no one dared to push her in, and so she was separate from everyone else. Which, like you you mentioned, I too have been a pastor since I was pretty young, and there's always a sense that you're just a little bit separated from everyone else because you're the person on the stage, you're the one saying, "Thus said the Lord," um, and in the water, all of a sudden, you realize that this is. I'm the same as everyone else. Yeah, that's right. So you you tell a story about living as a ghost um, or feeling like you're a ghost. Uh, you, you meet a lady, uh, a former parishioner at a bar a couple months down the road. Uh, talk to me about mm-hmm. how you go from being in this shared humanity, that Easter service, to a few months down the road. I guess you're still in North Carolina, and then you're feeling... Or did you? I think she said you, you felt like that to her. I don't know if you said you felt like that yourself, but... How, how did that ha- process go? Where did you go from shared humanity to feeling like a ghost? Well, you know, so the short of it was the reason, um, I mean, part of, part of leaving the church was that there was so much unsettled in me and in my marriage. Like there was stuff, and stuff that clearly felt like at that point, you know, ministry was just kind of propping up and this sense of not even, gonna, you know, wouldn't even know exactly what's here until stepping away. So... You know, I think what happened after that, I mean, I just had this long season where, you know, I was doing some writing here and there, partnering with some people on other projects, but I didn't have a real job anymore. And my life in Charlotte was built around this nexus of relationships that all were contingent on me as a pastor. And I just wasn't occupying that same space anymore. I still knew the same people, still loved the same people but didn't know how or if it was even appropriate or good for me to connect with them to where they are. Cause about, you know, if I'm not going to be there, they need their space to kind of move on with their new guy and uh, you know, all of that. So, you know, I just, it, the, the, the further it went, the more I felt like Charlotte for me, um, everything was so connected with the church and all that we did and dreamed of doing. So yeah, I just felt like I, I wasn't living like a real, a real life anymore. And I, it, what was so eerie about that, is that I had had literally six conversations in, within two days with a handful of friends in which I'd used that exact line. I said, in Charlotte right now, I feel like the ghost of the pastor of Renovatis. That was the line that I used. 
And so that night in the bar, when I run into this uh, young lady that, uh, I say young lady, she's not that much younger than me, but I'd baptized like five years before, hadn't seen her in a long time. Recall, I mean, I knew her to be somewhat uh, intuitive, and uh, I would, you know, in my world, I would say kind of prophetic, but we just hadn't connected. And so that, and I'm, this is, maybe this is the director's cut of the story. I'll still make you not necessarily have to like hit a censor button or whatever. But it's actually a little more harrowing than uh, than it is in the book, just in the sense that when she saw me, what she said verbatim, I mean, it's like she started saying these things that just seemed very knowing about, you know, kind of being happy to see me, but then me seeming really uncomfortable in my own skin and kind of sensing like this kind of displacement. And her, her exact phrase was, uh, when you walk in the door, it was like I saw the effing uh, ghost of the past. This <laughs> was the exact phrase. So and it, it really made the hair on the back of my neck stand up because it was so like, oh, I mean, I felt so seen and known in that moment. And it was like, whatever one makes of that, it certainly was a sense for me of like, yes, yes, that is absolutely who I am and what I am. And, and definitely some odd kind of divine confirmation in that somehow. Not validating that, but part I think that was part of what pushed me forward to feel like something concrete in my life would have to change. Because honestly... You know, up until that point, I hadn't even considered leaving really? the city seriously. You know, uh, I even already had a couple preliminary conversations about Tulsa. But at the end of the day, like Charlotte was my home, and I didn't have any serious intentions to leave. I, I felt like that was part of me coming to terms with the fact that, you know, whatever steps I took from there was going to have to involve kind of a complete reinvention. In some way. So y- your book has been out all of like a day now. Um, from my experience as a pastor, when I talk about grief. Uh, when I talk about vulnerability stuff, I find that what happens afterwards is that people come up to me and share their grief or they talk about their own vulnerability. Yeah. Uh, I'm assuming when you write a book about sh- having a shipwreck, um, your experience is going to be that a lot of people who've shipwrecked their life are going to want to come connect with you. Um, has that started yes. to happen already? Already. Yeah. You know, we did a couple book events over the weekend before the formal release yesterday and on, in a, and in a good way because there's a lot of grace on it, but it's been overwhelming, the kinds of stories people share, because I think folks are just so desperate for a little bit of permission uh, to, to talk about their, their deepest pain, and they often feel like they can't. It's just interesting to me in general how different I experience the world now than I did before, because I just think, you know, before you've had your own experience of uh, suffering or of hurt and, or heartbreak of some kind, I just think, you know, I lived a little bit insulated and... I always think about it in terms of, like, if you get a new car, like if I bought a black Toyota, then inevitably the next day you're like, well, the black Toyota is everywhere. And it's not like there's been a spike in sales with black Toyota. Just because you have one now, you're just awake yeah. to that now. You're paying attention to it. And I feel like that's what happens, like, with a shipwreck. It's like by the time you've had your own, all of a sudden, you, you're, sensitive, you're hyper-acutely aware of other people's pain. It's like you can recognize other people who are hurting. They recognize the heartbreak in you, and they and, and and people start coming out of the woodwork. So really, even before the book came out, I thought there's been such a marked difference in what ministry life looks like, just because I think you know that kind of brokenness is sort of a um, it, it is a pretty palpable, open thing yeah. if you let it be. If you don't work yeah. hard to yeah, definitely. It. If you if you let it happen, it's very yeah. I think you can find healing from others. I've always had a sense of. Uh, interest in stories of people in our profession who have screwed up, who've gone from being the, oh, you're the golden boy, uh, you're the golden girl, you always have yeah. the right answers, you always do the right thing, and then all of a sudden your humanity comes out and they go, oh, oh, okay. Because I, I think all of us, 
in our industry can go from being the person on the stage to being the person at the altar needing to, to repent. And one of the things yes, I've found in life is the people that I find the easiest to be confessional with and vulnerable with are typically those who are most aware of their own brokenness. Like my favorite accountability partner when I was in college was a guy who had been arrested. It's like, yeah, he's the best because I don't feel like, I don't feel like ashamed if I'm honest with him. Um, do you right, find sure, yourself sure. Um, preaching different? Do you find yourself doing ministry different uh, now that, you know, you would say that you've shipwrecked your life? Very, very different. Very different. And I think, like, it's funny because and this is always a little hard to talk about in the sense that, you know, on the one hand, it's like I have plenty of regrets. There are so many things I'd love to go back and do differently. But at the same time, I wouldn't choose to go back and be any version of my former self at peak or what I really wouldn't because I still think that there was a lot of naivety in that. And I, I, and I think that even with my deep desire to want to be an empathetic person and to be able to sit with other people in their pain, I just don't think I was very good at, you know, the way that I lived before. So yeah, I feel like now in a lot of ways, I feel like it changes, it changes everything. I mean, it's like this, the fire is still there. The zeal is still there. There's still a lot of passion and all that. But I just think that, I, I, yeah, I do feel like I preach from a different place. I feel like everything for one just comes from such a place of, of love lived experience now. Uh, that's been a change, by the way, is that it's, I'm still as inter interested in academic theology as I've ever been in terms of like, you know, stuff that stimulates my brain. But I feel like everything that I do ministry-wise, it's like it's so much less abstract and big ideas. I don't care about those things anymore. It's like by the time you've hit the dirt floor bottom, in Barbara Taylor's phrase, um, you just see the world so differently. Like I, I, I don't want to yeah. play games with any of that now. So it's not like I don't have the instinct anymore to how much cool theology mm -hmm. can I cram into a sermon or let's be super nifty and innovative. It's like, you know, it's like one, I think there's something about just tasting that kind of pain and experiencing that kind of real life that makes you, you know, just want to get to the heart of people's real human experiences. Different. I listen better for sure. I feel like I'm able to sit with people in pain so much better than I could have before. All those things are very different than they used to be. Yeah. I, I think that's probably one of the struggles that, that we in our profession who start early um, have a struggle with. You, you talk about in the book that you were a prodigy. Many people believed you to be, and I was one of those. I continue to be one of those people who believe you're a prodigy as a speaker, as a preacher. Um, but your line in the book is that you didn't have time to develop my own soul. Yeah. And that's like the lived experience. I, I remember, uh, I know a guy who, he was really young, uh, preaching in a very prominent place while he's still in school. And he would preach something like Tuesday night. The next day he'd be in class. The teacher, his, his theology teacher, would say something that would disagree with him. And then all the students in the class would turn to the student and expect him to rebut what the professor said. And you wow. can imagine like how damaging that would be for someone's like formational, yeah. you know, theological training. But more importantly, like your experience on life. I think that's one of the things that uh, you were, you referenced a great line from Merton about like one thing, um, one piece of advice that Merton had was to uh, avoid at all costs success. Right. As someone who's been very successful in life, uh, it's it's interesting to hear you say that because many would say, oh, you know, Jonathan's the, the paragon of a successful young preacher in your denomination, your ah. rising star and all that stuff. Um, but now you see that as actually a detriment to your development, would you say? Yeah, I think so, especially, and I, you know, and I, I think especially since 
I mean, not to try to treat this too much like therapy, but growing up in a preacher's home the way that I did, and I was so serious, I feel like in a lot of ways I skipped adolescence altogether. You know, I think I skipped like whole swaths of professional development, mm -hmm. you know, and I didn't, I mean, I'll put it this way. After I left for Nevada, I had over a year of just attending an Episcopal church, and I just, every week I would go down to the altar and kneel to receive communion and just weep my way through the Eucharist every week because. Everything about that posture was so different for me to be the one to kind of sit and kneel with open hands to receive. Like I, I, I felt like I'd almost never been in that position. Certainly had not been as an as an adult. So yeah, I do, do think in a lot of ways that hindered my own development because I just I never figured out how to live with open hands in that way. You know, it's like I was comfortable serving, but I didn't know I didn't know what my soul needed. I didn't know how to articulate that. I know where to to look for any of it, you know, I just think I didn't develop any of those skills, always being the one who's kind of in the driver's okay. seat. How early did you start preaching? Early 20s, right? Yeah, when I was 19. 19. Mm -hmm. So yeah. how long did you go without preaching? Hmm. From Well, you know, I, I didn't, the thing about it was I had a handful of friends in that time who were very aware of everything going on in my life, but, you know, knew that I was, I was in a really transparent process with them. So they would feel comfortable with me coming in and speak really kind of in the thick of a lot of things, you know? So, I, I mean, it was barely, very confessional, but it was few and far in between. It went from preaching every weekend to like just a handful of days scattered here mm -hmm. and there. Uh, and I had had a, you know, a, a pretty lengthy sabbatical before I left the church, mm -hmm. kind of trying to get things in order before. So, you know, you put all that together I think I think that was all of that. I think was just really important to me because I, you know, I think you do you can help but kind of get addicted to the mm -hmm. adrenaline of preaching. And I think in some ways, and of course, that all felt very violent. Really, at the time, was that there was a sense of I'm not doing the things that I'm made to do. What am I going to do? Well, you then you have to sit with your own stuff. And I mean, I didn't love that, but I think it was the best thing in the world for me, you know, to just to just not be that guy for a while. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine that'd be that'd be very difficult for me too to stop doing the things that I do because sometimes you might be doing a good thing, but it could be the very thing that numbs you from dealing with the best thing that exactly. you need to doing and doing your exactly. soul work. Okay, so one of the things you talk about um, is uh, in the process of trying to hold on to God during adversity um, is that sometimes we hold on to the old idea about yeah. God, and so you're holding on to old visions of God. Um, would you say that your vision or your understanding of God has has changed substantially since shipwreck? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's so it's changed so dramatically. I don't I don't feel like I quite know how to say that. But I mean, what's not different, I would say, is that I think that I had pretty good ideas about God theoretically because I was, you know, I read good theology and was around. I've been around some wise people in my life who had shaped some of that. But I still think a lot of that for me was much more head than heart. And I think that experiencing God from the underside, you know, is just so much different than kind of having these sort of propositional ideas about who God is. You know, it's like it's one thing to think that God loves people unconditionally. But I mean, I, you know, I always would have kind of thought of all that thought of myself as being as somehow exempt from a lot of those rules. I was uniquely messed up, and that was long before anything in my life changed. I mean, I just had a real complex about this thing. So to be in a position where you're kind of flat on your back and don't feel like you have anything to offer, but to know that you are loved and to know that God's heart and posture towards you doesn't change, like that for me has been 
revolutionary because I just think I wasn't in a place where I knew how to experience God's love in that way until I was frankly forced to. And my own sense of being unnecessary and not having anything to contribute and not having a real concrete way to serve meant you had you had to sit and let yourself be served. Instead of washing feet, you have to let Jesus wash your, your own feet in that season. That kind of experiential understanding of God's love has been really transformational for me. Yeah. You say that the worst enemy isn't the devil, but our own ego. And obviously, I think you, you kind of uh, uh, give a little background statement on that so you don't want to say like you don't believe in the devil but uh okay but you're saying that like the big enemy is our ego and so the difference is who we perceive ourselves to be versus who we really are is that part of the process of like realizing i am flat on my back i i can't fix this i can't earn this i can't do enough yeah and and that's how you determine this is really where i am in my standing with god in the world yeah, yeah, I really think so. I mean, I just, and I don't want to, you know, overdo the ego thing, but I almost feel like it can't be overstated. I read a book, I talked about this very briefly in How to Survive a Shipwreck, but it was it was running like an app in the background probably the whole time. Um, the book that actually most helped me, ironically enough, um, during that whole season was, I read a book by Catherine Dowling Singh called The Grace and Dying, and she's, uh, she's Buddhist, I think, but she draws heavily from Christian mystics. But the point is, she's like a PhD hospice worker who's been with hundreds of people through the dying process. And the essential premise of the book is that when, whether it's for a short time or a long amount of time, people, if they have time to die, they don't die tragically, typically all report to having this certain kind of quality of life and freedom that's just remarkable, even if they don't hold on to it for long. And so what she kind of documents is how what happens through physical death is that when body functions are kind of slowly shutting down one by one, is that ego is stripped away. But you're coming to live back at this place of kind of, uh, uh, like I would say, like native dependence. And in the process of doing that, of course, it's really painful at first, and there's great anger and denial and all that. But at the same time, it yields for even for the window of time, a lot of freedom, too. So the question that she posed in the book, I mean, I'll never forget this, is... And she uses the words of Jesus is, you know, kind of raising this, this question of, would it be possible to, uh, to live while you're still alive with the qualities of those who are actually dying? Like, it, it, what if losing your life to find it looks like that? You know, to literally live with that kind of like, with the ego stripped in that way, to kind of live from the soul. All of that just, just hit me in such a deep place because it did feel like in many ways that I was dying. I mean, the, the world that I, as I knew it. I mean, it, it like it like it was just it was just gone, and so somehow that just gave me a real vision for at least what I wanted that time to be. It's like for all the things about this uh, that are painful and awful, if I can allow it to strip some of these ego pretensions, you know, so that I'm living from a deeper place, a more integrated place, you know, that I, that somehow there could still be something really redemptive in that. Yeah. So one of the things that seems to be a reoccurring theme is the importance of like the friends who've walked with you through this. You talk about Chris Green. Uh, Chris has been on the podcast a couple of times, and uh, yeah. he's great. He's wonderful. Uh, the world's smartest Pentecostal, I believe, is what yeah. his business card yeah. says. Um, or it, I just say that about him and make him feel really uncomfortable. It, I, would, I endorse that statement. I will get behind you on that. Okay, good, good, good. I, uh, I had another Pentecostal friend who agreed with that. So that's basically three. That's the Trinity. So you have Chris <laughs> Green there, Jared McKinney, you talk about, um, you know, we're just talking about him. Another person you talk about is Stephen Furtick, who, yeah. as, you know, I'm looking through the list of people who endorse the book. Um, you know, you have uh, Rachel Hald Evans, Sarah Bessie, Sean Aniquis, 
you know, Chris Green, Boyd, Rob was one of them. And you go, okay, they all make sense. And then Stephen Furtick seems like he's, um, his books are not in the same section as all those other authors. Yes. And so some people might look at that and go, how could you and someone who it appears as though you guys read different people and describe God in different ways can have such a, such a powerful friendship that he's a person that you go to during a time in which you need friendship the most? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Well, you know, Stephen and I were became friends in our early 20s when um, I had just graduated from Gardner-Webb University in a little place called Bowling Springs, North Carolina. Stephen had just moved to the area to work at a church as a music pastor and also do some itinerant speaking for a mutual friend of ours named Clayton King. And so we go back long before we even started our churches. And I think, you know, I don't know, Stephen's just, he's such a, he's such a loyal friend. And it's interesting how, you know, just a season like that of your life so reveals who's really with you in that way. And I, I don't want to qualify that to say, especially so much in my world was changing. Some of the people that, that I felt like maybe could have been available to me, just or, or there was no way that could work just circumstantially, especially as I'm kind of withdrawing myself from the community, you know, and not wanting to complicate things. But some of it was sort of circumstantial in that way. But I also just found, you know, that like, you know, I live with this sort of vague sense that everybody's my friend and I have all these people out there. And what you realize when you really uh, hit the rocks is that you don't have that many people, you know, truly. And Stephen was, you know, was definitely one of those people who just, rose to the surface. I think he's, um, uh, for whatever things about us are different, we both kind of share this very Pentecostal side. I, there's always been a certain kind of electricity when we hang out because I think, um, you know, we're both really passionate people. And I don't know, it was just like, that was one of those relationships that kind of on the other side of everything just especially fed my soul and was grateful for it. I mean, I certainly do have a very diverse cross-section of friends. Mm-hmm kind of in the, you know, in the ministry world, which is a gift I'm grateful for. I mean, they all shape me in different ways. They all bring things to my life that I need. But yeah, Stephen was definitely one of those folks who most mm-hmm. was there uh, in the worship. Did, did, did he ever try to get you to go to his personal trainer and start taking all the protein or whatever he's taking? That's made it so huge. <laughs> no, none of that. None of that. I mean, I think he would have made anything available. <laughs> he thought would have been helpful. But he did not try to hurt you in that regard. I kind of hate that in the regard because I think it, like if I could have taken this season to... Uh, to Hulk up yeah. the way he is now, like it seems like. I mean, the ship's already going down. Like when people are in prison, yeah, they exactly. work out. Yeah, you, you should. Like you got more you time on done your that. Hands. Yeah, turn this into like your bench press going up, not writing a good book. When I was a church planner in north of Dallas in Denton, the closest church planning friend that I had, closest pastor friend probably in the area, uh, was a Acts twenty nine Calvinist Baptist church church planner oh. and he was the most generous hospitable welcoming person and we we wow. didn't read the same stuff and um we had different theological convictions but no one extended the grace and hospitality of jesus to me as a church planner pastor like like he did and so um it, it's it's hard to hold scarecrow arguments against people who are different from you when you actually know them and that was absolutely yeah that was very helpful for me so um Anyway, that's great. I'm glad you and Stephen Furtick are, are best friends, and I love that uh, Chris Green is in the book. You give him a shout-out uh, as someone who was there for you the whole time. Uh, yeah, that's good. Um, okay, so I, I, I have a friend who um, shipwrecked his life, a fellow pastor who would shipwreck his life. And um, when he uh, 
I don't want to get too much in his story here. I'm sorry. I'm trying to speak in ambiguities here. But there was a group of us fellow pastors who were uh, talking with him, and one of my friends said something to him that stuck with me. He said, uh, you didn't do anything that the rest of us haven't thought about doing. And I, I think <clears throat> Jesus talks about your heart kind of matters just as much as your actions do. And I think there's a sense of awareness that instead of looking at someone who's had a shipwreck uh, and go, oh, I'm so much better, to realize that course is one that all of us can be on very easily. And I, I appreciate you being willing to, to open up because I, I know a lot of us um, realize the importance of being able to hear that on the other side of, of that there is life. Because one of the most terrifying things for me is to go from, oh, everyone loves the pastor. He's wonderful. He's great. What happens when everyone looks at you as, as a different type of person? That would be really hard That's for right. me to, to, to reframe yeah. my, my position in the totem pole. Yes. Was that difficult for yes. you? Oh, unbelievable. Especially since I felt like even my place sort of within my denomination as my father's son, I felt like I, there was just this kind of space I occupied as this young and up-and-coming up and whatever. That Yeah, I, I found that to be incredibly difficult to, 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 to make that shift. And yet there again, I think at the same time, even back to that Merton quote that you brought up, there was a, uh, a lot of grace in that too, because I think with that does come an unhealthy kind of weight and responsibility that sometimes, again, I would say now, even in the best of times, I don't think I really shouldered well, because there's way too much identity wrapped up in ministry. And you know, I feel like in some ways you almost can't name a lot of that until it's sort of ripped apart. And so you don't recognize how bound up a lot of those things, those things are. So in that way, uh, there was a lot of, of grace in coming to see some of those things for what they were and to begin to reorient my life in some ways. But yeah, that was terribly, that was terribly difficult. And part of why I know being in Charlotte was so hard, in, 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 in particular, was kind of being in this town where I've occupied a certain kind of space and now I'm not anymore. And yeah, all that was incredibly difficult. Yeah. It, but it seems like in that, that process, all of a sudden you, you see the world differently, you experience things differently. You talk about um, sleeping and breathing and eating and you're going to a yoga class which as I go to yoga and I haven't shipwrecked my life yet yeah um, right maybe never let's not use the word yet there let's right. just say never yeah. um, but it seems like those uh, you saw those very small things in such a bigger way yeah afterwards right yeah, yeah. that's absolutely true well because I think it's like I feel like pre-shipwreck you just or in my case I don't speak for everybody universalized but just took a lot for granted, and and once you kind of hit a place where you feel like I don't even know how I got out of bed today, just that level of brokenness, depression, all that, and to start to take joy in these kind of simple things about just being alive and human. Yes, the grace of a good meal or a, a beautiful treat, like things I just feel like I didn't really notice before. I just started to notice differently, and with 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 just this really deep gratitude, you know. And I feel like that's true to this moment. Is that kind of on the other side of all this? I just don't take things for granted the way that I used to. It's like you know, kind of that same principle. It's almost like you can't recognize life as a gift in some ways until, in some ways, you start to be deprived of some of those kind of familiar comforts, and then all of a sudden, it just kind of your 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 senses sort of shift, or at least mine. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. 
Well, uh, and it's great that that led to a deep sense of gratitude. Uh, I have a deep sense of gratitude that three times during this podcast, you said that I asked a good question. So thank you for that. And uh, thank you for the best questions in all honesty. Let me, let let me write that down. Um, (laughs) your book, how to survive a shipwreck. It's out now. People should go buy it. Uh, thanks. Thanks for doing this, man. Yeah. Thanks for having me on friend. Really is a pleasure. Thanks for checking out newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.